0: Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Scale with Predictable Success. And today I am really delighted to have Julia Hamm, the President and CEO of Smart Electric Power Alliance, sometimes called SEPA, with us. Julia, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Les.
0: Well, now you and I um, uh, go back a while. Uh, we've worked together for many years, but for our listeners who don't know what uh, the Smart Electric Power Alliance is and who Julia Hamm is, just tell us a little bit about your background your your own history of how you got to Sipa and what it does.
1: Sure. Well, let me start with the organization. So, Sipa is a nonprofit and it's been around for multiple decades now. So, it was formed back in 1992 and actually has changed a lot over the, the course of the years. But today, we are focused on fulfilling our vision, which is a carbon free energy system by 2050. And so we work across the electric power industry to help all stakeholders with um, keeping up to date with what's happening with technology, policy, markets, and um, really focusing on the electric utility industry the entities that regulate that industry, and the technology companies and other solution providers that work with electric utilities, ultimately to um, provide more clean energy on the system for the benefit of customers. And we do that through education, through research, a lot of stakeholder convening and facilitation, We are not a trade association, so we don't do any advocacy or lobbying, but really focused on being a unbiased resource for information and problem solving for the industry. So I have been, uh, I, I first started working for the organization a long time ago, more than 20 years ago now, when I was just a year out of college back in 1999. And I came in, again, very entry level, Fulfilling you know, sort of a, a role that wore, wore, wore multiple hats, working with the board, helping with membership, doing some meeting planning. I left after a couple of years of doing that to go um, take on a different position uh, in a related organization, but then came back as the CEO in 2004. And so I have been the CEO for a long time now, for 16 years, and uh, it's been a fun ride. <laughs> it, <sounds like> a, <laughs>
0: it certainly sounds like a, a fun ride. And, uh, you know, our listeners are, um, uh, many of them, uh, just like me, they're uh, business model nerds. Uh, what's your essential business model? How do you How do you stay around?
1: Sure. So we have a relatively diverse... Uh, set of revenue streams, although <laughs> once we start talking about COVID, we'll, we'll, yes. we'll talk about where, what needs <laughs> to happen with that going forward. Uh, but about 50% of our revenue comes from trade shows and conferences, so convening in-person events. About 20% is from membership dues. Uh, another 10 to 15% is from government grants. And then the rest is from contracts, with individual companies, where essentially on a fee for service basis, we are helping them uh, with their own specific needs related to introducing more clean energy into their system.
0: Got it. And so, as you alluded, you know, all of that's been upended. Obviously, we'll talk about that in a moment or two. But if we could just uh, spool back, um, uh, just I don't know, it depends how you look at it, either three months or 400 years to the pre-COVID time, just as, as you were coming into 2020, uh, in your world, in the world of SIPA, what was new, exciting, challenging, you know, what, what did your big 30,000 foot uh, strategic uh, challenges and excitements look like before this all hit?
1: So while well, we've been around for a long time and have been working with the industry on incorporating more clean energy, really where, where we were coming into 2020 was that we've, we as an industry have reached this tipping point where um, it was a bit of a challenge in the years and decades past to pull people into this momentum of the importance of more clean energy for the purpose of really reducing carbon because of climate change. And, but we, we, again, in 2019 really was the tipping point where the industry realized that they had to step up and play a leadership role. This could not be the industry being reactive to policy mandates or reactive to individual customer um, requests. And instead, that they need to play a leadership role in driving change. And that is a significant change and really put massive momentum behind SEPA because that that is all what, you know, it is what we're about is helping companies do that. And so there was this swing from for decades, really trying to handhold and sort of pull people along to this momentum change of. We don't need to pull people along anymore. They're right. going on their, they're going, and they need our help.
0: Right, right. And that was a long time coming, and must have felt you know really good to have got there, uh, and maybe beginning to get less of a sense of you, you know, with this sufficient task of pushing the rock uphill. You and Siba and your uh, fellow organisations, and beginning to feel okay. There's something's happening here and we can follow along and build on it. Or there's a lot happening here and we can follow along and build on it. And then March, early March, mid-March happens. I think, I get the feeling just as we were recording this coming towards the end of June, I think we're beginning to uh, come to a point where we're starting to be able to see a, a bit of a shape of a narrative back in March. You know, I, I know for me, I, I at the time, I just was doing what I needed to do, but I can now step back a little and say, okay, the first sense for me with this, and the biggest challenge was that. How did did that, I wanna trace through to where we are now and spend the majority of our time talking about where you see the future for you, for you and SIPA and how you're trying to design that future, but how how did this all build? What's the narrative for you? What was the first inklings you're gonna have to do something? And you know, talk us through just the pragmatics. Our folks would love to hear you know just the reality of what it was like to take your organization. You maybe can share something about a number of people if you're comfortable with that. What were the mechanics of being the CEO? Mm-hmm. What did you need to do in March and April?
1: Mm-hmm. Sure, and I can talk about that both from sort of an internal perspective with our staff, our team and then an external perspective in terms of our work with the industry. Perfect. So internally, so we are a team of about 50 and 75% of us are based in a DC headquarters office. The other 25% of folks always work remotely from home offices in various locations around the country. Uh, Not necessarily by design, but because they are, Subject matter experts and um, relatively limited pool of people who are qualified for those jobs. So we were already, as an organization, quite far along in terms of our ability to effectively have people work remotely. Uh, with 25% of the people always doing that, you know, we we had the technology solutions already in place. There was already an expectation that when we did meetings, we were using video so that our remote employees could video into those meetings and see the people in the room. So the actual transition going from an office environment to a remote work environment, I would say relative to a lot of other organizations, I think was pretty simple for us. Right. There were a couple of last pieces. Well, actually, this is... Uh, <laughs> I, I seem like a genius in hindsight, you know, there, <laughs> there were, a, there were a couple of trial policies that I put in place at the, in the fourth quarter of 2019 that made it oh. seem like maybe I had a crystal ball and I didn't, I was just, just coincidence, but in. Uh, were those in, around things
0: like remote working?
1: Well, yeah, so one, one of them was that I had put in place a trial policy that all employees could work from anywhere one day a week. And so, you know, we were testing that out and see how, we're going to see how it went. And then I was going to make a decision at the end of Q1 2020, whether that would be a, uh, you know, a, I don't want to say permanent, but a policy with no specific end date. So that putting that trial policy in place actually forced our team to start working on some of the last pieces of the puzzle that would effectively let everybody work from home remotely. So for example, we had uh, moved almost everything to the cloud already over the past few years, but our our accounting system and our HR files and documents were all still on an in-house server. When I put in place the everybody can work from anywhere one day a week policy, it forced our IT folks oh, of to start working on how do you move those things to the cloud as well. Right. And and so there are a couple other things like that that um, coincidentally, so we start also working remotely on March thirteenth, which was a Friday. So whatever <laughs> that whatever that Tuesday was, the tenth or whatever the date, March tenth or eleventh actually was the day that everything officially had moved to the cloud.
0: You do seem like a genius in retrospect.
1: exactly. (laughs) A prophet and
0: a genius.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And then the other thing I had done was put in place a a trial policy that everybody, that we would, we used to have a policy where people could wear jeans and dress relatively casually. We're generally a sort of very business casual environment, but jeans and sort of more, dress down was for Fridays only before, but at the end of, but in the second half of last year put in place a trial sort of, and everybody can wear jeans and dress more casually every day unless you have external meetings. You know, and of course, of course now we are all wearing, you know, shorts and you know, whatever we want every day. (laughs) (laughs) So both of those trial policies are both now, you know, really truly, (laughs) Um, embedded
0: (laughs) and then as far as your um your forward-facing client activity uh what what were the biggest changes to hit you in the early stages
1: you know so it was interesting to manage the team through this because i've got we have a phenomenal team and they are they're wonderful yeah many of them especially our subject matter experts are very action oriented and they're very mission driven and action oriented so when this all happened they immediately wanted SEPA to pivot and start doing things to help our members with things that were their new problems that were resulting from COVID right and you know I had to help the team take a step back and say listen I understand our our customers, our members have this new set of problems in front of them, but they're not directly connected to our mission. So in fact, what we need to do as an organization is get out of their way, right? We actually, (laughs) we actually need to let them know we are supporting them Mm -hmm. by not bombarding them with information right now, or by not distracting them with Things that are important
0: but not urgent. And yeah, it's easy to forget. This was these was back in the days when, you know, uh, somebody I bought a ninety nine cent app from on the app store sent me a you know a, a four page email reminding me to wash my hands. We were you know, <laughs> everybody was doing that. So you took this the view let's not do that. And I guess that was part of mm-hmm. not being a trade association. It's not your job to fix everything for your members. It's your job to Correct. stay focused on right. That makes a lot Correct. of sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was tough for a lot of members or at least some members of the team who said, no, 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 but we, we are a membership. We're not a trade association, but we are a membership organization. We should do whatever we can do to help our members. And I said, mm, well, now our, we are a mission based organization that happens to right. have members Just to right. remind people of that. So, so yeah, so, you know, we really, you know, and we took the pulse through our board and some other, members who were or customers were particularly close to to validate that that was the right approach. Right. Um and and that it was. They said, yeah, you know, and you have to keep in mind a lot of our members are electric utilities, so they're the people who are providing all of us with the electricity we receive every day. Right. And these are companies who don't ever have employees work remotely and many of them have thousands or tens of thousands of employees. So they were not only trying to figure out how do we keep the power on how do we maintain the system how do we when somebody has a service problem at their house so we're not supposed to be interacting with people or getting close to people how do we do that right this so, but at the same time they had to figure out how to transition their entire workforce to work remotely so it was and the
0: they're first... they're almost not. I mean, I've got to be careful because these are your customers and clients. But you know, utilities historically have rarely been that nimble. I mean, mm-hmm. immediate flexing mm-hmm. is not something that that industry has required. The half life of the information and products that they're, that they're offering is quite long. So that that that's in itself correct. has got to being a challenge, right?
1: So well, well, did you know, j- but but it's but it's actually a fantastic, and that's one of the big takeaways I'm hearing people talk about already out of this is that. They have proven that they can do it. Right. They can be nimble. They can act quickly. They right. did a phenomenal job in this situation, pivoting to doing something totally different. Right. And so the, the, they've actually proven that they can do it. <laughs>
0: And that's, I'm I'm talking as a total layperson, obviously here, that feels to me like a relatively untold story. You know, when we're thinking about Mm -hmm. emergency workers, we're going to the medical side of stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, delivery drivers have been talked about, and no doubt you're hearing a lot more of it being in the industry. But for those of us a little distance from it, i would never really thought about that from the utility point of view, just keeping the lights on and needing to pivot to do that.
1: That's a that's a remarkable point to they're absolutely essential workers there's right. no doubt about that yeah.
0: so then we start to realize this is not uh, a bad dream and it's going to have impact what what were the biggest moving parts in terms of perceived and likely impact to your own business model
1: Yeah. Well, for us, like I said, fifty percent of our revenue comes from getting people together in person for trade shows and conferences. So, uh, yeah, we you know we host probably somewhere on the order of fifteen to twenty in person events of varying sizes every year, and you know they they literally range from taking a group of 30 people abroad for a week to study what happens in another market up to a 20,000 person trade show and everything in between. So we, you know, again, in those early days, and I think it's sort of just as I'm talking to you, I'm sort of realizing what one of my own sort of personal takeaways out of this and sort of a, what I think we did right.
0: And we'll be right back with Julia in just a moment to hear precisely what it was that she got right as a leader during this COVID crisis. We're also going to talk about the biggest single challenges she has faced as a leader during COVID, the changes she's made in running SEPA, how she and her team are approaching innovation, and much, much more. Now, if like Julia and me, you're an MSc, that's the most senior executive, whether you're the founder or CEO or managing director or lead pastor or Madam Secretary, whatever the title of the most senior person in your organization, if that's you, then you know one thing for sure. It can be really, really lonely up there. Sure, being the most senior executive is a great privilege and it brings with it great responsibility, but it brings great challenges too. And sometimes we just don't have the right forum to go and share those challenges. At least not in a way in which we feel comfortable and supported challenged and held accountable and i'm sure you've got a great team in your organization a fantastic senior leadership team who supports you but there are times when you're just not ready to share with your senior team just yet and there are other times when you want to talk with people who have got a different perspective than from the inside of your organization sometimes you just don't want to distract your senior leadership team because of some of the other things that you've got going on. And you've almost certainly built a great support group of friends and family. But let's be honest, I know this and you do too. There are many times when you're grappling with a particular challenge, a growth challenge, either around your own leadership or the growth of your organization, and you just don't want to burden your friends or your family. And many times, even if you did, they often can't really help you. And that means they're left feeling frustrated and you're left feeling unfulfilled. And it's just because of that challenge, the challenge of it being lonely at the top, and yet I've got big challenges of my own to meet as a leader, that I started the Predictable Success Mastermind Group. Julia Hamm, our guest interviewee today, is a member of the Predictable Success Mastermind Group, along with a group of like-minded growth leaders just like you. And perhaps the Predictable Success Mastermind group might be exactly the place to go for the support, accountability, and encouragement you need in these incredibly difficult times. So why not go take a look, make your own mind up, head over to predictablesuccess.com forward slash mastermind and check it out. And now back to our guest today, Julia Hamm
1: was that patience, having patience was the right answer in so many of these situations because when March 13th came, that sort of seems like the day, right? Like March 13th, suddenly the light bulb seemed to go off that this was real and meaningful for for the US. Um, You know, we had a meeting, we were supposed to be, a conference we were supposed to be hosting in early March Um, of, you know, 400-ish people. We had, you know, another one. And basically every month we have at least one big thing like that. And then our big trade show, our 20,000-person trade show, was scheduled for September. I watched as other organizations like us that host meetings all scrambled to postpone their events in late, March and April. Originally, it was sort of late March and April. Everybody scrambled to postpone them to July and August. Right. And we waited. <laughs> right. um, and in hindsight, right, all of those people that postponed to July or August had to do it again. Now had to do it again. Right. right. And they're back in the same position. And we waited to make decisions. We monitored what was happening. We knew what the trigger points were, if there were specific dates that were contractual or related to our, our constituents, our customers, having to make decisions about whether they were gonna to go to something or not. But we did not rush to make right. changes right. to our plans. And, and I think that worked out for us well.
0: really did. Um, and that yeah. gives you some breathing room then. And uh, I noticed in the interactions that you and I have had during this time that um, you're following an arc that I see the, the upper quartile of responsive organizations have followed as well, which is you know immediate triage, all hands on deck, just do mechanically what's needed, hold off, hold off, hold off, pivot, sure, any immediate pivots do that but for the, not for the smoke to clear, because we're nowhere near that yet, mm-hmm. but at least to get enough um, of a view uh, to begin to start to think creatively about mm-hmm. what do we do next. Uh, I've been calling it leading from 5,000 feet. You know, we're Typically, we're used to being up here at the 30,000 feet level as leaders. We went down to runway level and we were good at that because it needed to be done. But now we're just up a little bit, you know, 5,000 feet level is nothing like what it was before, but we've got to start at least thinking about how to plan. Now, what has that felt like for you? Have you been off on the mountaintop on your own a lot? Do you have a small team, a group that you work with a lot? And what are you, what are you doing? What, what tools are you reaching for to try to get your head wrapped around what next? What do I do next?
1: So I would say that it varies. Well, at, at, the, at the organization level, I mean, obviously, you know, I've, I've got an executive team. So it's myself, my chief operating officer, and my chief strategy officer. So the three of us obviously do a lot of that. You know, we,
0: we have to, we have to press pause there just for a second for our listeners to make sure they didn't hear you. You've got two strategy officers.
1: No, I've got an operating, chief operating officer and a chief strategy officer. Oh, and
0: the chief strategy officer. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Good, good, good. Yeah. Oh, I thought you said no, two thanks. strategy officers. Then I was thinking, all right, that's going to have fun having two <laughs> sets of strategies coming in. No, hopefully all right. that's
1: not what I said. Uh, so yes. <laughs> that team
0: gets together and what have you that, been, you know, where's your head as a team? What are you looking at? Are you looking at three months, a year, just throwing things against the wall? Yes. Yeah, are you so, approaching it?
1: Yeah, you know, we're thinking about things, sort of the longer term things, and and I'll talk about that in a second, but I think it's also important to note that we are also, there are other teams of people that are focusing on specific pieces of the business and what that needs to look like. So, and that has been working well, and, and, you know, you and I have had a lot of conversations about how to facilitate innovation in this environment and within sort of where SEPA is in the predictable success model. And I do think it has been working well that we've got different teams of people thinking about planning and plans and shifting and innovating and pivoting. Um, But yes, at that that executive level, it wasn't until, again, I, I was waiting for the dust to settle a bit. So at that executive level, our executive team started talking about scenario planning in, oh, what is it now? It's June. So probably mid to late April right. uh, was when I felt as though the dust had cleared enough that I could reasonably start thinking about scenarios. Right, And so, and really from a time scale perspective really primarily focusing on the next 18 months and thinking about what I already had a grip on what this year looks like. I, you know, and this year's a lot, you know, this year is just, (laughs) it is what it is. It's, it's not pretty. Um, fortunately we're financially healthy enough that we can ride through using, um, money we've got in the bank for this year so my primary concern was around 2021 and yeah you you don't look like
0: with that emphasis on event planned events you don't have the option to wait till you get there you've got to start thinking about that now right
1: yeah yeah otherwise
0: it would be rinse and repeat from previous years
1: yep Uh, And, and so you know we created three scenarios for what we thought 2020 really again focused on 2021 but also one of the scenarios is sort of like absolute worst case which then bleeds beyond 2021 (laughs) Uh, but i think the more real you know we're hoping and i think of the more realistic scenario is that if we can manage through 2021 we'll be okay again um so we have not made any decisions about 2021 at this point, but we have the scenarios. We are in the midst of our 2021 planning process. We always start planning for the next year in May or June. And so the team is planning now, but we won't make decisions until fourth quarter. Right. When you know, so... Obviously, we're never going to have all the information we need. There are still probably going to be a lot of uncertainties, right. but it's sort of back to this patient's point, right? Yes, I'm going to wait yes. until I have as much information as I can possibly have until we have to make decisions about what 2021 is going to look like. So the team is planning with the full acknowledgement that from a resources standpoint, we don't know what resources we're going to have available. And so they're planning with that in mind so that when we get to fourth quarter, we have a better sense of sort of what the financial picture might look like. We can then put into the official sort of final plan, which is always, of course, a possibility that could change as we get into 2021. Okay. But the plan, as we head into 2021, will be based on the best available information we have fourth quarter. Um okay.
0: Uh, and I'd, I'd love to to move to talking uh, for a bit about the internal communications of all mm-hmm. of that and how you've been handling that as a leader. But before I do, I just want to pick up on one really uh, uh, piece of minutiae here. But I, I, I happen to know that many of our listeners um, would love to hear just a little bit more about it. When you talked about um, putting those internal teams together, so you've got your, uh, you know, in our work, T1, the senior leadership team mm-hmm. doing their work. And then you mentioned you've got a number of teams doing stuff on individual aspects, uh, innovating around uh, individual topics. Are those by and large siloized teams or are they cross-functional or are you doing both? What's what's Mm -hmm. been your approach to that? Do you let the subject matter experts do that? Do you encourage cross-functionality? How's that been working out?
1: Every, culturally, everything we always do is cross-functional. It is very rare that there is ever a siloed team working on something. That is part right. of our nature. Um, and you know this because we've talked about it, but we, we work in this team of teams environment. Right. And so any project, you know, whether it's a well-established project or some sort of innovation project, always has people from across different functional areas to provide different input and perspectives into it. Right. So so yeah, it, it really is a cross-functional effort. And Although there are cases, I will say, you know, with some of the things we're focused on right now in terms of really sort of future looking, how might we need to pivot if large in-person events are more challenging in the future and potentially could generate less revenue for us, uh, there are some things that the team is working on where I have provided specific guidance that, like, I know normally this is the group of people that you would have, you know, you are, you know, saying, hey, you, executive A, you are accountable for this innovation project, including putting together the team. And I know that this is normally the team of people you would probably pull for that. But in this environment, I want you to be think outside the box about who are other people on the team who really are good at thinking outside the box. Right. <laughs> and right. put some of those people on the team as well because right. in this is just a place where we've got to think differently right. and not just think the way we've always
0: in, in our terminology here as you know in predictable success that we talk about injecting the V you know getting the visionary mm-hmm. aspect yeah. of mm-hmm. the VOPS yeah. model in there Just broaden that out a little bit Julia to to the challenges uh, you have faced as a leader generally just communicating in all of this uh, talk to us a little bit about that how, how, what's the approach you've taken with internal communications is it often mm-hmm. uh, is it uh, infrequent but content driven just what, what's, what's been your yeah. style and, and nature?
1: Yeah, my style has definitely been, there is no such thing as over-communicating. Right. Um, and I've gotten amazing feedback from the team about that. Um, and so as soon as we went all remote, uh, we started having weekly all-hand staff meetings. So prior to this, we used to have monthly all-hand staff meetings. So we've now been having weekly all-hand staff meetings, um, and w- one of the the technology tools um, is that that had been in the plans but was not prioritized until we all went remote was essentially Slack. I mean, Slack is not the brand we use, but an internal Slack-like a to- chat tool. Yeah. Okay. So that launched within a week of us going virtual and i am in every group and i am constantly and it's both the work related things but also the social things i'm mm. in the recipes group i'm in the <laughs> parents the parent support group i'm you know it's i'm in the social distancing funny memes group you know what <laughs> you know and it and, and i'm contributing and so people are seeing i'm i'm making sure that i'm really visible both both on a That's professional great. level and a personal level so that people still feel very connected to me. But yeah, over communicating. And, you know, I, I feel like this is, I, I'm saying this too many times, but I'm not, again, this is sort of, <laughs> I feel like I'm over communicating, but I'm not because I'm saying it to different audiences. Right. But right. one thing that really has stuck with me was a comment from a member of our team. So we do, we've always done quarterly staff surveys. So when we did the end of Q1 staff survey, you know, sort of it was happening the first two weeks in April, so I got the results mid-April. So, so there were a few weeks of of COVID in that, um, and that was what was fresh on people's mind when they were taking it. And and one of the one of my employees made a comment in the survey that one that a takeaway for them out of all a learning from them out of this already was that no news is still news
0: yes yes and
1: what they meant by that was that you know as we're having these weekly staff meetings i'm very conscious of saying i know you guys are really anxious about xyz thing last week i told you that this had happened that this had happened with it nothing has changed since last week. right
0: that's so important otherwise people it's a vacuum and people fill it you know they, they They'll imagine stuff or presume stuff. That's really mm-hmm. important. And uh, probably a great segue into uh, the two questions I'd, I'd love for us to close out with. Um, one is just for you to reflect back on your own journey thus far. And I, I'm sorry to say that I think just literally this week as we're recording this, I'm beginning to get the sense that thus far is not as far as we thought it was. But thus far, what have you learned about yourself as a leader? And also, just as we speak, to hold us both uh, transparent it's towards the end of of June, Um, what do you feel for sure for next year for SIPA? So what what, what have you learned about yourself as a leader thus far? And what, if anything, do you know for sure for SIPA for next year?
1: Mm -hmm. What I have learned about myself is that prior to this experience, if you had asked me or what are my strengths and weaknesses as a leader, I would have said that my strengths are all of the external facing things that I do and that my weakness is all the internal stuff. And what I've learned is that that's not an accurate statement. What I enjoy and what I get energy from is the external facing stuff, but I'm actually very good at the internal stuff. I just don't enjoy doing it. So it's not a matter of it being a weakness and that I'm not good at it. It's just it's not what I how I prefer to. Not where my time. your preference
0: was, right? Yeah,
1: that's yeah. fascinating
0: because <laughs> I, I do I do recall you've said that to me many times that you know the forward facing yeah. stuff is where you felt your strengths were. But this has proved that you've actually got all that it takes to do the internal stuff. It's just not what was floating your boat. Yeah,
1: yeah. And
0: and what <laughs> about the future looking forward?
1: Oh, oh, geez. I don't know. There, there's a. I feel like there is a lot of uncertainty. I mean, the only certainty is that I don't think the future will look like the past. Right, right. (laughs) That's as firm as it is, right? That's as firm as it is. Yeah, you know, and when I think about it from a how we operate standpoint, you know, we have had for years. We've had a lot of our employees who are based in the DC area saying, "I don't understand why I can't work remotely." Right? Why can't I work remotely all the time?
0: Right.
1: And you know, I never had a good answer for that. <laughs> um, and I still don't have it. You know, and, and now I'm like, well, I think we've proven that. Yeah, exactly.
0: There isn't any that reason.
1: We, there isn't any reason. I mean, right. do we lose, do you lose some value from not being together in person? Yes. Right. But do you gain as much, if not more, in other areas than what you're losing in, you know, sort of that rapport you know, sort of the the water cooler chat that happens physically. And I think I land at, it's either a wash, you gain as much as you lose, or maybe even in a number of cases, you gain more than you lose. Right, right.
0: Uh, Certainly, March wasn't the time to assess that, Uh, maybe not even early April, but I think we've all begun to get a sense of whether this has been a net positive for each of us Mm -hmm. individually and I I do think one of the things that I'm uh, hearing and watching and seeing is that if and when we do get back to the point where that's an option uh, I think the the cohort of folks who will always want to come in every day there'll still be that cohort but it will be smaller the Mm -hmm. cohort of people who given uh, the option would want to continue to work from home will be much larger but i think there's a whole new thing evolving which are folks not only entirely comfortable but but who want a distributed approach who want to be able to come in and get that vibe when they need it maybe use it for strategic thinking creative thinking Mm -hmm. just as a break in routine but who can then snap back and maybe get into ultra productivity mode when they're working in a more isolated environment
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: One way or another, uh, you know, one of the reasons I asked you on, uh, Julia, is because of the um, just the sheer privilege of watching you operate. And in a sense, I've had the privilege of seeing your brain work through a lot of those things as we've discussed many of the options that you have. And, and it, it just is a remarkable job that you've done with SIPA. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us here. And I know our listeners will take so much away from it. Um, I've said to some of the other folks um, recently on the podcast that... Uh, i really want to come back in a year from now uh, wherever we are uh and touch in and see you know how have things develop because we're we're in a massive amongst many many other things much of which is uh, you know hugely negative. We're in the middle of a fascinating case study you know uh, and, I, mm-hmm. and i' would love to explore a little longer but for now, Julia, thanks so much for joining us
1: oh thank you Les and and not just thank you for having me on, but thank you for all the guidance you've given me you've been a huge help and Uh, couldn't have gotten to where I am without some of the insights you've given me throughout this journey. So thank you. My
0: My pleasure. Thank you.